I'm Craig Foster and this is Getting It Right, the show about hiring, buying and working with purpose. A social enterprise is all about purpose, but where does profit come into the equation? Profit's quite a dirty word in the not-for-profit sector and I don't call it profit, you heard me call it retained earnings and they're, they're for reinvestment back into greater impact and I think when you start talking to people about that, you realise that Um, If we're not sustainable, there is no impact. A social enterprise might have the very best of intentions and even the very best of ideas. But those intentions and ideas don't amount to much if the enterprise goes broke. Steve Batinsky knows this all too well, having spent the first part of his career in the corporate world. So what's he bringing across and what's he leaving behind? My name's Steve Batinsky. I'm the general manager of uh, OC Enterprises. OC Enterprises is uh, a disability service provider based in southeastern Melbourne, and we provide employment opportunities at the moment for around about 100 people who live with disability. So good to chat with you, Steve. Really looking forward to getting into the marvellous work that you're doing today. Can we start by just going back? Have you always worked in not-for-profits? No, no, I haven't. It's uh, if you look at my resume, um, people uh, raises a few eyebrows. I spent uh, most of my earlier career in corporate uh, banking and finance primarily, and um, and then there's a sudden jolt about nine years ago into not for profit. And whilst on paper that looks like a jolt, the reality is that. Um, in terms of me and who I am, it was always there. So even when I was in um, the corporate world, I was participating in not-for-profit through volunteer opportunities. I was on on a couple of boards um, and an opportunity came up uh, nine years ago uh, to leave uh, my current role in banking and finance. And I made a pretty big decision at the time that I wanted to make the for-purpose aspect of my work, the mainstay, and and that's that's where I then transitioned over into into not-for-profit. So, been here now for nine years, and um, uh, it's been an amazing journey. I've I've learned a hell of a lot, and I have to say, you know, everything everything kind of comes around to benefit you in the end. And all that time that I did spend in corporate has has really given me some fantastic tools that I've been able to hone and use. Um, in the not-for-profit sector as well. OC Connections started many, many decades ago, around 72 years, I understand. Gee, the the social view around uh, ability and disability at that time would have been very different. Tell us about the beginnings. Yeah, spot on, Craig. It was 72 years ago and OC Connections actually has a very rich uh, and important history in the local community. So it was started by a group of families uh, in the southeast Melbourne suburb of Oakley who um, at the time really felt that there had to be better options available than the current institutionalised settings for uh, supporting and caring of uh, of their, their children at the time. And so they actually started what was the Oakley Centre at the time. So 72 years ago, um, we continue to operate to this day and we have grown significantly. So back 72 years ago, it was primarily around um, day services and accommodation. And around about 40 odd years ago, uh, we added the employment side. So where we would um, provide supported employment, as it's called at the moment, uh, to, to, to local people who experience or live with disability, largely intellectual disability uh, in our case. 
And you're right. If you look at, you go back to the stereotypical um, view that people had of employment, you can picture, you know, a whole bunch of uh, people with disability in a congregate sort of setting. It's a it's a factory or warehouse type setting. People are wearing high vis, doing, you know, kind of, uh, for want of better terms, quite menial work. And if you have a look at where we are today, we have a suite of social enterprises uh, that caters for a whole range of employment opportunities. The idea being giving people agency, choice, and control around not just the type of work that they'd like to do, but the settings in which that occurs. And you know, the the reality of that is. It, it's basically doing what we would do for everyone else. Like for you and I, we have the ability to make choices in our vocation and that should be absolutely the case for people living with disability as well. So that's a, a core part of um, where we are today and, and that we'll see, as I said, we've got social enterprises that work in office-based setting, doing uh, document management, document digitisation work for people who like to work outdoors. We've got fleet cleaning businesses. Uh, We've just started up a whole new enterprise with an eco products line. um, And we continue to do, we do light manufacturing and we do do, you know, um, packaging and packing work as well. We've got people, Craig, who have um, been with the organisation in its various forms now for, you know, over 50 years. It's incredible. It really is. So you're a, a leader in Australia when it comes to social enterprises. What precisely are you trying to achieve with this? Tell, tell us about this move into it and and particularly around um, the outcomes that you're seeking. So I joined OC Connections three years ago. And at the time we were doing uh, largely what everyone was doing that as I described, that congregate-based sort of setting, warehouse factory packing. And we put in place a transformation to move us to more of a job-focused social enterprise model. Uh, and that meant that not only did we need to look at work types that were suitable for um, people and aligned with the goals and aspirations uh, and the careers, and I like to use that word, by the way, careers rather than jobs, uh, people do seek careers. Uh, regardless of their level of ability. And so the challenge with social enterprise uh, really is, it's those two words, it's social and enterprise, it's an impact model and it's a business model. And you cannot deliver meaningful, scalable, um, sustainable impact if you don't have a viable business model. So that's where the, the benefit of all those years in, in corporate and in business and institutional settings um, really helped me to uh, understand and identify and work with others around bringing together the impact model and the business model. So we were creating work that was good work, meaningful work, decent work for people. And we were able to find commercial opportunities where we could actively compete uh, on the open market. And so that's not just with other social enterprises, that is with other commercial businesses. And our goal was here in Victoria to start with, was to focus uh, on the opportunities under the Victorian Social Procurement Framework, which the, for those that, that know is uh, 3% of government funded, state government funded contracts must go towards, 3% of the total value must go towards unlocking social 
value from that contract. So whether that's employing people directly from the identified marginalised or disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, which includes disability, uh, or procuring goods or services from a social enterprise, uh, a social trader certified social enterprise, which is what all of our enterprises are. And how successful would you say their social procurement framework is? 3% doesn't sound like a lot. It doesn't sound like a lot, Craig, but I'll throw a couple of numbers at you. So under Vic Big Bill project, 165 uh, projects totaling around about $91 billion worth. 3% of that quick mass is about $240-odd million. $240-odd million going towards um employment, employment opportunities for marginalised and disadvantaged Victorians uh, is is pretty decent. Tell us a, a little bit about the triple bottom line strategy. Yeah, that is a, a very deliberate part, Craig, of what we, um, when we did our transformation and we looked at our new enterprise opportunities, not only did we want to be able to create ongoing and meaningful and sustainable work for our our participants, which is people living with disability. But we also recognised because we were working to target opportunities under the state government procurement, social social procurement framework, sorry. Um, it was more than just being able to provide work to people. There was there was there was the environmental overlays. There's there's very good policy settings around recycle first. There's there's policy settings around local jobs and and how we can stimulate local economy and circular economy models. And all of this stuff is really starting to mature now. And so when we looked at it, what we really wanted to be able to do was hit on all three of those aspects. So unlock social value, deliver on environmental imperatives and create circular um, models which stimulate, which use and stimulate local economy and local supply chain partners. Uh, and if we can do that, what we're doing is we're solving multiple problems with the delivery of one particular product or, or, or service. And that makes life easier for the customer. So a lot of these state government contract uh, operators have to report, for example, on what they send to landfill. So if you're developing products or services that provide green options that reduce landfill and in the process create work for for your beneficiaries, uh, and you're not importing those goods, those products you're actually manufacturing locally, tick, tick, tick. Uh, And I think if we can do that, then we're on to uh, we're on to a real winner. You've now turned your attention to one of the most wasteful products in the construction industry. Tell us about that project. If you notice on any major roadwork or construction a- area, you'll see a lot of um, witches hats or traffic bollards, and traffic bollards are the uh, the taller uh, orange. Um, poles, if you like. They've got a reflective um, strip on them and they're used to delineate um, traffic and manage traffic flow and pedestrian flow through high-risk environments. So this is a great example, Craig, of exactly what I was talking about. So each one of those bollards weighs 960 grams, just under a kilo. They are all at the moment imported from overseas, largely from China or Taiwan. Uh, and all made from virgin plastic materials. Uh, 
they have very short lifespans. They live in high impact environments. They get knocked around a fair bit. And once they're broken, um, that's it. They're done. Uh, our, our research indicated that if you got 12 months out of one of those, you've done really well. There's no easy way to recycle these things. So they end up uh, dumped at the back of a depot and eventually into holes in the ground. And if you think about some numbers around that quickly, you know, 10,000 of those going into a hole, that's 10 tonne of virgin plastics going into a hole. And and they're a, a very, they take up a lot of space. They're long, they're cylindrical, they're hollow in the middle. So it's a lot of space taken up and a lot of virgin plastic going in the ground very, very quickly. And then what happens is they will just order new bollards and the cycle continues or the straight line continues from production, consumption, waste, and um, in, and for a very, very short lifespan. So this was one of those opportunities in our transformation, Craig, where we did identify, we worked very, very closely with industry. We engaged the consultancy of, uh, of another social enterprise, Social Outcome Solutions, and it was a real deep dive into having a look through where they spend their money, what goods and services are they procuring, and what problems do they have? Because what you don't want to be is a product or a service looking for, you know, a solution looking for a problem. Uh, and, and then even worse, a solution looking for a problem that doesn't have a budget line yet. So what we wanted to do was identify where we could deliver tri- triple bottom line outcomes and pivot an existing commercial spend to a social spend. So the bollard was one of five opportunities that came up through that process. We put them through, um, you did a fair bit of modelling and, a, and, a, and a, a lot of due diligence and out of the five, as I said, the bollard was the one that popped up. That was two years ago. So this has been nearly two years in the making and it launches, uh, as you mentioned, in uh, it's a couple of weeks now, so mid, mid-October it should be in the market. So what we do is this. Um, at no cost to to the uh, the contractor, we will collect those old bollards to save them, put them in the ground. So that does two things straight off the bat. First thing it does is it reduces that virgin plastic going into landfill. Uh, we then t- uh, so our guys will do that collection, sorting, and pre pre recycle processing work. So that that's where it creates the first bit of work for our guys. So we pick up those bollards, we take off the old strips, we sort them into the different plastic types, uh, and then they're ready to go. They're ready to go to a local supply chain partner. Polymer Processors, uh, a part of our supply chain based family owned business based in um, southeast Melbourne. They then recycle those old bollards, turn them into a pelletized input material to be used to make new bollards. So we, OC Connections Enterprises, developed, built um, a uh, blow mold tool that we own, and we then give that to another second local supply chain partner, Garden City Plastics, who use that blow mold tool under license. So what we've done there in stimulating local economy is that's that's job creation at both those organisations, and that's money staying within the local economy. Um, Those those bollards then come off the, the new bollards come off the production line um, at Garden City Plastics. And that's where the second bit of work comes in for our guys. So the, our guys will then finish the product. So that's where adding on the retro reflective strip and then it's about packaging, packaging them up and getting them out to customers. So we do production runs of about 20,000 
So let me give you some, some numbers around that. There's about 1,000 hours of work creation in the resource recovery aspect of that. There's 930-odd hours in the finishing, so almost 2,000 hours worth of work created for people with disability from each production run. Um, if you are manufacturing 20,000 20, units, call it 20 tonne, 20 tonne less virgin plastics being created, it takes 1.75 kilos of fossil fuels to manufacture one kilo of high-density polyethylene. So um, do the maths on saving of, of that. You're saving 20, 20, nearly 20 tonne of virgin plastics going into landfill because we're, we're taking those out to produce the new bollards. And then that cycle, Craig, can continue in perpetuity. So when our OC Eco T-Top bollard gets run over by a truck like a lot of them do. It doesn't go into a hole in the ground. We take that back and it goes into our circular economy model where we will recycle those. We encourage users um, of of the bollards to, to try and repair them and, and reuse them. So if a strip comes off, you know, pop the strip back on. Um, but if they end up all squashed and damaged, we will then recycle those and they can continue to use those over and over and over again. So we've hit those triple bottom lines of social outcomes, decent work for our guys, environmental outcomes, reported a diversion of virgin plastics from landfill and stimulating local economy using local supply chain partners and creating local jobs. That's extraordinary a project, Steve. It sounds as though you've inverted the process and that your social enterprise, if you like, is now starting to take your own control of where the opportunities are. You're investing your own resources in that aspect. I guess your commercial background must have been pretty helpful here. That, that's, you've really picked up on a really important point. That is, that is exactly what we've done here. And we are now able to, because we have invested that time, that IP uh, into and we've, as I said, it's been two years and we have learnt an amazing lot in, in those two years. And um, what that has enabled us to do is see future opportunities very, very clearly. And so if we just stick with plastics, for example, you know, we, we can collect potentially more bollards than what we can use in a manufacturing process, those plastics don't go to waste. We could put them into products two and three. So we're already looking at what products two and three are. And as you've absolutely just landed on, we have flipped it over and we, we're now in the driver's seat. So we, we've got the supply chains in place. We can leverage that now. We can scale that up. We've got the relationships with the end customers, with the government agencies, with the intermediaries like social traders, etc. Um, you know, the runs are on the board. And when we prove our delivery around that, and we can bring that product to market, and it has to be at market. So we, it's great that we do all of that. But if, if, if someone has to pay double for that, they're not going to do it, Craig. So you still have to be at market and be competitive. And we've been able to do that. And the more we can scale it up, the better we'll get at that. So we, we can now see a, a clear pathway to, as you say, taking control of the getting in the driver's seat from a commercial point of view. And the beauty of that is, is unlike a commercial business, we will now be able to reinvest any retained earnings from that into 
developing products two, products three, and come up with something that that allows us to to, to actually self fund that model and grow that model and reinvest in that model and. When I talk to a lot of other social enterprises and, and even when I joined OC, you know, profit's quite a dirty word in the not-for-profit sector and I don't call it profit. You heard me call it retained earnings and they're, they're for reinvestment back into greater impact. And I think when you start talking to people about that, you realise that um, if we're not sustainable, there is no impact. You talk about heart for people, head for business. Let's just a turn to the people um, and, and and please just take us through what the impact is on those people who are your employees, who you're providing with dignified work. I think we just talk about people in general and what does work mean and work for someone with a disability is the it's work for what, what work represents to you and what work represents to me is exactly what it represents to someone else of that may have a, a different ability to us. And, y- you know, people's thoughts, feelings, goals, aspirations, emotions are all still there. And so it's just so much harder for people in our context, so we're people with disabilities who, who we primarily support, and that's people primarily with intellectual disabilities. And, you know, a, a lot of them have been on a hiding no- to nothing to try and get ongoing, meaningful, sustainable work. And the sad part of that, Craig, is some of the talent, some of the work ethic, some of the attributes that people bring to that, that work you'd have them in your, t- in your team, in any team, in a heartbeat. And the really hard thing for me is, and the frustrating thing is s- people not seeing that opportunity. And so one of the things I'm really now committed to doing is how do we, how do we crack that nut? How do we, how do we bridge that gap and move away from the fear and lack of understanding to seeing the opportunity? So too often you know, I'll use this example. When I, when you interview for, for, for a role, what are we looking for? We're looking for what people can do, what they can bring to the role. Yeah. Now a big shift happens and it's an unspoken one when you're interviewing a person with, for, with a disability or considering someone with a disability for a role. The subconscious is, or what you're trying to find out is, what are their limitations? What what can't they do? And by default, what you're doing is completely and straight off the bat from the beginning, not focusing and not taking into account and not thinking about what someone can bring to a role, can bring to your organisation, can bring to your culture. And I've got to say that, again, there's been... And under the social procurement framework as well, we're starting to see some fantastic opportunities and we've now got, we just put two people, for example, who had goals of uh, open employment into head office roles with Bunnings. They were fantastic. We've got four people out um, who will be buying our bollards, by the way, but also they have roles going in uh, administration, office-based administration roles, project database administration roles, and quite willing to sit down with us and not focus on what people can't do, but 
co co design work roles that actually bring out people's strengths and focus on pe- what people can do. And I think if we do that, all of a sudden people thrive because that is great work. People feel confident and are successful in that work. And then that creates this positive cycle of development, both in the individual and in the organization. And they go, oh, wow, look what, you know, look what Steve can do. This is fantastic. We need to, there's, what else can we get, have a look at here? Steve, I love what you're doing. Wish you the best of success and thank you for your time. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to Getting It Right. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, make sure you scroll back through your podcast app and check them out. There's plenty of inspiring stories about hiring, buying and working with purpose that you don't want to miss. And to make sure you don't miss the upcoming episodes, hit follow in your podcast app while you're there. Getting It Right is a Jobs Bank podcast produced by Deadset Studios.